the headline on a satirical website, that means it's fake, reads, Man 91 dies waiting for the will of God. So the brief fake article intentionally specifying that to you says this, Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Well, the point of the joke is that God has revealed his will for us. So we don't need to waste any time at all searching for it, especially 70 years of our lives, trying to find some, some sign, trying to hear some whisper from God about what we should do with our lives. His will for us, the scripture tells us, is our sanctification, becoming more like Jesus Christ, to live for his glory. Or as the Westminster Catechism puts it, man's chief end Chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we, we must use wisdom, no, no doubt. Wisdom gleaned from the Scriptures. Wisdom gleaned from other faithful Christians who have walked according to the Scriptures. But we have the will of God for us in the, in the Holy Scriptures. He has told us. So it would be worthwhile for you to consider this for yourself at the beginning of this new year. Are you living intentionally according to your God-given purpose? God has created you for His glory, to live for His glory, to know Him more, to love Him more, to trust Him more. Are you living intentionally for that purpose? It can, it can happen from time to time. We just get in a rut of doing things the way we've always done them about going about our normal routines and we forget about this we forget why we have been created it's for the glory of the almighty god and it, and so it would be well of us also to ask this of our church are we living in the purpose with which we were founded why we were created as a people and since the beginning of our church we have said that we exist for a particular purpose and we've outlined this purpose in these three statements. We exist to love God's glory, to love God's people, and to love God's world. And so over the next three Sundays, we'll do something a little different, as Jason said, than our usual diet of Sunday morning preaching. Usually we preach through books of the Bible, because that should be the main diet of God's people. But we'll consider these three topics over the next three Sundays. Why do we exist as a people, as a church? And so we'll begin with this statement that we exist to love God's glory. Now this is another way of saying we exist to love God. Or we exist to, to worship Him and to live for His glory. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 38 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. To worship is to ascribe to God the glory due to His name. To proclaim His worthiness. Worship is more than just outward activity, right? We see 
in the scriptures, God speaking to his people and saying, you worship me with your lips and with your sacrifices, but your heart is far away from me. And so it is having, not only having outward activity, but having genuine affections for God, esteeming him as worthy. Worship is a response to who God is and what he has done for us. We love God because he first loved us. This morning, then, I want us to consider one of the primary ways we love God's glory. We love God's glory together as a church. And that is in the corporate worship of God on Sunday morning. So let's consider this purpose of ours this morning. What should characterize our worship together each Lord's Day? I want to offer four characteristics of our worship. What our worship must be if we are to be faithful to this purpose we've described as loving God's glory. So consider with me, we'll, we'll look at several passages of, of Scripture, so have your Bible ready to turn to those passages as I come to them. First, though, our worship must be based on Scripture. It must be Scripture-based. Do you agree with that? Say amen. In other words, what we do on Sunday mornings must necessarily flow from the Bible. This is necessary, a necessary conclusion simply because of the very nature of Scripture. Because of what it is. It is God's holy word. It is breathed out from God himself. It is revelation from God. It tells us who he is, who we are, and the sort of worship he desires from us. And so I'd like to suggest that our corporate worship must be Scripture-based in at least two ways. The elements of our worship and then the content of our worship. So by the elements of worship, I'm referring to the things that we do during uh, our time, the things that make up our worship service. Why do we do the things that we do? Maybe, maybe you've wondered this about churches. Why do they do things the way they do? Why do they have this as a, a, an element of their worship service? How do we decide what things we will do and won't do? Well, in these things, we should take our cues from Scripture and ask the question, what things are we commanded to do in Scripture? Right, as we look through Scripture, especially as we see in the New Testament church, what sorts of things are we commanded to do in worship? Well, one, we're commanded to pray when we come together. So in Paul's instructions concerning the church to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2, we read, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So we pray as a church. As Peter led us in prayer, he explains what we're praying about, and then he, he, he leads us together in prayer. We're commanded to pray. It was the practice of the Old Testament church and the early church. They would gather themselves together for prayer. Now, you know, I'm not giving you an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive list of all the scriptures pointing to why we ought to do these things. I'm just giving you samples. We're also commanded to sing. Look in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 with me. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. So you're either you must be scrolling on your phones to find that passage. Ephesians five, eighteen and nineteen says this. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are called to sing together. And so that's, that's you know, I saw some of the concerts on New Year's Eve, uh, you know, on the television. And I, part of me thought that is a picture of what many modern worship services are. A, a One leader up front, and he's the main guy. All the, the attention is focused in, in on him. The light, everything's dark. You can't see anybody else. You're all focused in on this worship leader. And it's almost like a concert. But the scripture talks about us singing to one another. And so we, we've made it an aim to, to make sure we can hear one another's voices. That the centers of attention is not on me or the worship leader or the band. We ought to be singing praise to God. And in doing that, we are singing these truths into one another's hearts with thanksgiving. We are called to sing together. And so, you know, you've, you've sung some this morning. You, you're going to sing at the end as well. So when you sing, sing with joy. Sing heartily unto the Lord, knowing that your brothers and sisters are taking note of your singing and they're either encouraged or they're discouraged by your own singing. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're commanded to practice the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the signs of entry into God's people and of ongoing fellowship. And we will celebrate that following the sermon this morning. These were instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself to His disciples. And of course, we are instructed to have the Scriptures themselves read and preached So look at 1 Timothy 4.13 with me. 1 Timothy 4.13 Paul says to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. It's not that when Paul comes, he should stop. But Paul's giving him instruction. This is what you need to immerse yourself in. Give yourself to this work of the public reading of Scripture and its teaching. This is the business you, Timothy, as a pastor of this church, should be about. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, Paul gives Timothy, and really by extension all of the pastors of God's churches, this solemn responsibility. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. We must be careful to do and emphasize those things in worship which we're commanded to do. And so we're called to worship God, not however we simply think is best, but according to God's desires and instructions for us. So it turns out that in many ways, 
not only has the message stayed the same over all these years, but the methods have also stayed the same in many ways. Remember, brothers and sisters, that as we read in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, we must offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Acceptable worship. How do we determine what is acceptable worship? Except by what God has revealed to us in His Word. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We must not only do biblical things, those elements, but we must also be biblical in content. So everything from the beginning reflection upon Scripture to the prayers, to the singing, to the institution of the supper and baptism, to the reading and preaching, even to the benediction, these things ought to be steeped in Scripture. The content of preaching must be God's Word. So just before... The charge to Timothy that we read earlier to preach the word, he says this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You know this passage maybe by heart. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why the main diet of our preaching is expositional preaching. Explaining what the Scripture teaches, exhorting, correcting, encouraging, and teaching from the Word. It's also why we practice usually what's called Lectio Continua style of preaching. That is, preaching through, consecutively, through books of the Bible. And so, this coming year we have a few books of the Bible on tap. uh, Jonah, Ecclesiastes, and John in particular. So we try to vary the genre of Scripture that we're preaching and reading through as well as the testament that we're preaching from. Why do we do this? Well, we do this because this is ultimately how God saves sinners and grows us spiritually. Do you believe that? That it's through especially the reading and preaching of God's word that he nourishes us, that he convicts us of sin, that he grows us in holiness? The Westminster Larger Catechism addresses this when it asks, how is the word made effectual to salvation? And the answer, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of, listen, enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up, in grace, and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. See, brothers and sisters, this is what you need when you gather with the saints. These elements and this content which is based upon God's Word. Often, have you realized in your own life there's something different than what you think you need and what you actually need? Those two things don't always line up. I went to get a flu shot with the kids just a couple of days ago. And in your mind, you're you're thinking, I don't need this. I'm not going to get sick. It's going to hurt. You know, I'm not going to enjoy that. And the kids were a little nervous about it. And I was trying to encourage them. It's going to be okay. You know, you think you don't need this, but really it will protect you. It will give you help. And so they went through with it and they had no problem at all. And when I got my shot, a little tear came to my eye. I was like, ah, that hurts. I can't stand that. 
we think we need one thing often, and we, we, we don't recognize what we need. It comes that way, and it happens that way in our spirituality as well. We think we need like the latest fad or Bible study that's hit the markets, that's at Lifeway, that we, can, we need to go because everybody's reading this book, and it's going to change your life. We may think we new, need new and exciting elements of worship that the church has down the street, but what we need are those things God has given us in His Word. We may think we need a light show or graphics that astound us, but what we need is to be astounded once again by the word of our almighty God who has spoken to us. We may think we need a preacher with a charismatic personality or a music leader with just the right amount of coolness and edge or an atmosphere that gets us in just the right mood for worship. But what we need more than anything else, brothers and sisters, is to hear the voice of God as He speaks to us in the Holy Scriptures. This is what we need for our spiritual life, for God to speak to us. Have have you recognized that this is what you need? Not only when you gather here at church, but also individually as a Christian. This is what you need. The very Word of God. So maybe it's time in your own life to reassess what it is you think you need from this gathering together. What you think it is you need in your own personal times of uh, your spiritual devotion. And maybe it's time we come back to the realization that this is our greatest need. That it is a miracle beyond what we can imagine that God himself has spoken to us. This is good news that he has spoken to us. So our corporate worship must be scripture-based. It also must be God-centered. It must be God-centered. That was my longest point, so we'll get shorter from here if you're just getting a little nervous with the time. Our worship must be scripture-based because of the very nature of scripture, and it must be God-centered Because of the very nature of God. We are to worship God alone. We are to center our worship on God alone. For He is worthy of our worship. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96, 1 through 6. Psalm 96, 1 through 6. There we read, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible is Isaiah 46, where God himself is describing the difference between idols and himself. They are nothing. They must be picked up and carried around. They can't accomplish anything. Things must be done to them. But God says in verses 8 through 11 of that chapter, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That God alone is God means our worship must be, can only be centered on Him alone. It means our worship must be directed to Him. But I also think it means the content of our worship should primarily be about Him. You know the difference. In other words, our worship should be less about merely expressing how I feel about God and more about the character and majesty of God Himself. Now, I happen to think there's room for describing our affections to God in song as we sing or other parts of worship. We see it in the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, right? In Psalm 42, the psalmist describes his affections for God when he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come before God? In other words, when shall I come to the gathering of God's people together before Him? So it's right that that we ought to have real affection and, and it's right to express our affections to God. You ought to sing those verses with passion from the depths of your heart. But even in this psalm, his hope is ultimately found not in his own inward feelings about God, but in the Lord who commands His steadfast love by day and gives His song to His people at night. His ultimate hope is found not in His inward feelings, but what He calls His rock, the God of His salvation. Often we could get stuck in a rut of self-expression that lacks any amount of God confession. So, in the... By that I mean confession about the character and majesty and greatness and power of God Himself. So an example of this is in all throughout the Psalms as well. But consider Psalm 33, verse 47. In the midst of a song of praise for the steadfast love of the Lord, the psalmist says, For, here's the reason I'm praising this wonderful God, for the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. This is what it means to love God's glory, to to focus first on who he is and not merely on our own self-expression so we could ask ourselves as john piper puts it are we really loving god or are we merely loving the fact that he makes much of us there's a difference so to love god is to love him for who he is his character his greatness his power his majesty but if we only or primarily love that he makes much of us what is it that we are loving but ourselves So our worship must be God-centered in all that we do. Third, our worship must be Christ-exalting. must be Christ-exalting 
because of the nature of the Christian faith itself. What distinguishes a Christian worship service from any other? What distinguishes a Christian song or a Christian prayer or sermon from those of other faiths? Well, it's Christ. It's Christ. It is that we are worshiping not some generic God, but the God revealed to us in Scripture as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are worshiping the God who covenanted before the creation of the world to save a people for Himself through the work of the Son becoming a man, living a perfectly holy life and suffering and dying on the cross for atonement for sin. So our Christian worship must make much of Christ then. This is what we see really in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't think that we only see Christ exalted in the New Testament. The Old Testament saints were looking forward to the Messiah, prophesying about the Messiah who would come, while the New Testament saints look back on the Messiah and His work for us. So this is why Jason read the passage of Scripture from Corinthians this morning. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message, not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You may think, well, this is not really a danger for us, is it? Leaving Christ out of Christian worship? How could you possibly do that? But I would argue if we're not careful to maintain an explicitly Christ-exalting worship service, then gradually we will not exalt Christ, and then even more gradually we won't even notice that we're not exalting Christ. If you doubt this, then you could attend any number of Christian churches throughout North North Carolina and North America, and probably other parts of the world as well. In many cases, it wasn't intentional. Perhaps it uh, began with just a downplaying of this suffering, this brutal suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. Maybe we don't want to focus on that. That's too ugly. It's too brutal. Let's focus on all the positive, uplifting things in Scripture. So they mentioned Jesus, but failed to mention His work for sinners. They talked about how loving He is, but failed to talk about His suffering and death on the cross. Failed to talk about His blood that was shed for sinners. And before long, they began mentioning Christ in name only. In many churches, if it wasn't for the liturgy that they have, there would be nothing else to distinguish it as explicitly Christian. So then we must exalt Christ, His person, His work for sinners like us. His righteousness, His suffering, His sacrificial death on the cross for sinners. In our music, in our prayers, in our preaching, in the sacraments, let us be careful to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need this individually as well, don't you? Do you have the temptation or the tendency to focus on merely ways you can get better as a a human being? Better as a person, so you read certain self-help books, but your focus isn't explicitly upon Christ and His work for you? 
Or maybe even as we consider our evangelism, consider how our evangelism must be Christ-exalting. It must be centered upon Christ. And so you cannot simply give your testimony without sharing what Jesus Christ actually did to save sinners. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news that Christ has saved us by His grace. And so let's exalt Jesus Christ in all that we do. And finally, I'll finish with this point. As we seek to love God's glory, together our worship must be Spirit-filled. It must be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to have a Spirit-filled worship service? What does it mean to be a Spirit-filled person? Perhaps your first thought is that Things should be lively, right? The speakers, those praying, especially the preacher, ought to really be excited, enthusiastic about what's going on. I was at one church, and the, I can't tell you how many, I started counting the word excited because they would sit, the speakers would say they were so excited all the time. And I was just amazed that they were always so excited. You may think that the music ought to move you in a certain way. You ought to be able to feel the Spirit in your soul. You may think of other, other things as well. But these things, think about it, they're only surface, surface level qualities. They may get you excited, but being excited isn't always evidence that someone has been filled with the Spirit. For example, consider someone who just won the lottery. They're pretty excited, don't you think? Or consider football fans or shoppers on Black Friday. Think about some things that get you excited that have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. What it means to have a Spirit-filled worship service, we could say many, many things, but I'll just say two One, that we are dependent upon the Spirit for God's grace. We're dependent upon Him. And second, we display His fruit. We display the fruit of the Spirit. So dependence upon the Spirit and a display of His fruit. To be dependent upon the Spirit means that we recognize the great need for the Spirit of God to work among God's people by God's appointed means. Do you realize you are dependent upon the Spirit to have a changed heart? If you are an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, you cannot change your heart on your own. There's no amount of tears you can come up with, no amount of emotional sorrow you can can work up within your heart. You need the Spirit of God to be born again. It is a work of God, not a work of man. The same goes, brothers and sisters, for your own spiritual growth. You can't do it yourself. You can't grow yourself. There's no amount of reading you can do, no amount of spiritual habits you can do to make yourself grow spiritually. It is a gift of God by His Holy Spirit. Now, He does use appointed means. The reading and preaching of His Word, the gathering together of the saints... By coming together week in and week out, you are opening yourself up to receive God's grace through these means by the Holy Spirit. But you cannot do it on your own. We are desperately dependent upon God 
to work, to convict sinners, to convict you of your sin, and then to mend up your broken heart by the good news of the gospel. We are desperately dependent upon the Spirit to give us faith, to raise us from death to life. And so we must acknowledge this through prayer and submission to the means He has given us. To display the fruit of the Spirit is where we really get to see in tangible ways that our worship service, that our gathering together is filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says that this is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where you see these things at work among God's people is where the Spirit is active. And notice these things have to do with our relationships with one another. It's not about how boisterous you are in your singing. That doesn't mean you can't be. You know, we want there to be an atmosphere of freedom where if you want to raise your hands, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But that is not necessarily a sign of the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work in us is sanctifying us in the likeness and holiness of Christ. And this holiness is worked out in relationships within the church. In other words, if you have a, a, a church service which is filled with excitement and, and enthusiasm, and there are divisions, and there is a lack of love among the membership, and there is a lack of joy and peace among the membership, the Spirit is not there. He rejects that sort of worship. So this means a few things. We must know one another enough for these things to be present among us. We must be warring against the fleshly selfish desires which produce division and strife. And we must continually submit ourselves to faith in God who gives His Spirit, striving to keep in step with the Spirit. Dependent on God to produce this fruit among us for His glory. So friends, do you recognize our purpose in coming together week after week? Do you recognize that this is a part of the way, a primary way we come together to love God's glory? My aim has been that we might see how this gathering serves the purpose of loving God's glory. We want our hearts and our, our minds our eyes of faith to be lifted up in worship to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that He might be honored and that we might receive His grace to us in Christ. You see, the interesting thing about loving God's glory is that we end up receiving benefits when we do that. We ascribe to Him worth and majesty, the praise which is due to His name, and He pours out His grace to us because of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Are you enjoying God in this new year? Make it your aim to enjoy God Almighty and to give Him glory individually, but also as we come together week after week to worship His holy name. Let's pray together.